Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org lost. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1960, and if you got a lady and nowhere to go, then I got an apartment for you. The movie, The Apartment. everybody. Welcome to Unspooled. How you doing? I am Paul Shear. Amy Nicholson is away on assignment in Sundance. You can follow her on Twitter where she's posting reviews of all the movies that she's seeing. But she's actually going to be here for today's episode, which is about the apartment. I'm just doing the wraparounds at the top here. Um, if you don't know what Unspooled is about, let me tell you. This is a podcast where we go through the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time uh, and see if they are as good as people say, do they hold up, and how have they influenced the filmmakers of today. And I have to say, The Apartment is one of these films, in my opinion. Uh, but you will also hear Amy's opinion about this film as well. We'll get into all of that in just a second. But I want to go back to last week's episode where we talked about The Wild Bunch. Um, and on the Facebook group, uh, you unspoolers were pretty divided on this movie, like a pretty much a 50-50 split. Um, I know that I've talked to a lot of people who said, yes, Peckinpah belongs in this list, but not The Wild Bunch. A lot of people think uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia is the one that should belong on this list. But let's see what people are saying on uh, the message boards and in other spots. Um, Mark Evan Naff writes, screenwriting guru Sid Field actually knew Peckinpah, and according to him, Peckinpah said he would structure his films this way. The first half of the film would lead up to a big event, and the second half would be the consequences of that event. You know, that's interesting that you say that because I would argue the Wild Bunch is decidedly not that. It's sort of like a big event that opens the movie and then the whole rest of the movie is the consequence of that. I mean, so in a way, yes, but in another way, uh, it's right at the start there. Maybe this is the way that he came up with his style. And, and there are other things along the way, but I do believe that's all the fallout from that opening scene. 
This next one's from Nick Johnson, who uh, lets us know that uh, Ernie Borgnine was a Freemason. Yes, they are real. And he was elected to and received a 33rd degree IGH. I don't know what that means, but Nick at Nick Johnson uh, on Twitter actually has a link to an interview with Ernie Borgnine as they talk about being a Freemason. So that's a little fun fact. I also found a great uh, picture that I was able to uh, put up on my little uh, texting app of Ernie eating a, a popsicle uh, on set. And there's something so cute about eating a popsicle in the middle of all of this carnage. Um, but you can see kind of cool little unspooled tidbits that we can't even get on the air on this app thing that I've been trying out. It's a texting thing. It's 917-877-0657. If you, uh, you know, just want to write unspooled, uh, then I will just kind of put you on the unspooled uh you know, that's where I keep all my unspooled info that's not fit for air, uh, like that picture of Ernie Borgnine that I can't physically show you because it's a podcast. Anyway, uh, Chizzo for Rizzo writes, AFI is not new metal. Guys, we got to get a handle on this. They were punk, then dabbled in horror punk. I didn't even know that was a thing. And finally transitioned to goth emo. They were never new metal. All right, well, there we go. Finally, someone, I'm, I'm going to take um, Chizzo for Rizzo at, at uh, his or her word because anyone who knows about horror punk, I believe they would know that uh, the difference between new metal and, uh, <laughs> and uh, goth emo. Garrett Tanner writes, would anyone else agree that the Wild Bunch is essentially the basis for the modern heist drama? You know, we're often told about a gang of professional bank robbers who have a wild card in their group and they intercut the tail with an investigator who sometimes has a connection to that group but always has an extreme desire to catch them, uh, even if it's just for justice. Some even go as far as to include an outside party like General Pachi, who becomes a real villain and the antiheroes must face them to atone. And the examples that Garrett Tanner brings up is the heat, the town, Fast Five, etc. No, this is um, actually a really astute point, and I wish Amy and I would have talked about that at uh, length. I think that I've gotten so used to the idea. I mean, I even think about uh, Ocean's Ocean's 11, Ocean's 12. I mean, Ocean's 12 is actually a little bit more in that category because the bad guy is the guy, well, you get it. It's a good movie. It's actually better than you would remember. People did I tell you that we have an amazing spot online to buy unspooled merch? Well, we do. You go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled. You can check out all the great merch there. And if you want to follow along with the podcast, you can head to podswag.com and get yourself a limited edition top 100 films on the AFI list, a hand-drawn art by Scott Campbell. It's a beautiful poster that looks good in all apartments. I have one framed at my house. I love it so much. Go to podswag.com. You'll see the unspooled page, but there's plenty of ways to uh, support the show, and we appreciate that so, so much. We want to see you in your unspooled swag. Uh, we'll be having another um, Alamo Drafthouse show coming up in a little bit. Um, also, uh, just to get you guys ready, you know, next week we are going to be talking about the Oscars. So if you only listen to this part of the show, uh, start watching those movies so we can have a pretty uh, spoiler-rific uh, talk about all of them. I know I got I to gotta do The Irishman. I got to put some time in on that. Anyway, um, all right. So this week we asked you a question, um, something that was kind of appropriate to the apartment. If you know anything about the apartment, the apartment is about a man who gives his apartment key to his boss to – get ahead at the place that he works. And I asked, and Amy did as well, is there ever been a moment in your life where you've done something to get ahead um, that maybe 
It was a little bit uncouth. Let's take a listen to your answers. Uh, I once gave a producer an authentic Planet of the Apes face prosthetic in hopes. I gave it as a birthday gift, but in hopes that he would uh, give me a job for a film that he had coming up. And he, in fact, did give me that job. And it, uh, it turned out well. And I got an Oscar for it. I once agreed to be in an off-Broadway children's theater production that was inadvertently incredibly misguided and racist in order to get a better teaching schedule with a company. Uh, this isn't actually a personal story, but I thought you guys would find this entertaining. It's about your friend uh, Rob Hubel. Uh, I had the pleasure of working with him many, many years ago. This may have been his first job out of college. Um, anyway, so the story goes that he uh, impersonated a pizza delivery man and delivered a unordered pizza to the CEO of the channel we were working for, which was the Outdoor Life Channel. And inside that pizza box was his resume. Uh, the CEO uh, got the pizza, saw the resume, and proceeded to hire Rob, and uh, Rob was a good employee for many years there before his comedy career took off. So I thought you guys would find that one interesting. Take care. This is amazing. We have an Oscar winner on here. And more importantly, Rob Hubel, uh, friend, as is my friend, um, the godfather of one of my children. Um, I know that pizza box story. That is something that <laughs> I remember from back in New York. Um, that was, that was amazing. Uh, that's a great, great story. What great answers. I love it. And what a great way to get into talking about the apartment. So let's unspool it. Now that Amy's not here, I can just say it with reckless about Come on, baby, let's do the twist. The year is 1960. France tests its first atomic bomb in the Sahara and joins the U.S., U.K., and U.S.S.R. as a nuclear power. The American Heart Association links smoking to heart disease and death in middle-aged men. Fifteen African countries gain independence, and South Africa leaves the Commonwealth. It's the first time Americans have used aluminum cans, watched the Flintstones, or experienced a televised presidential debate. Audiences are watching Ben-Hur, Psycho, Spartacus, and today's film, The Apartment. It comes in at number 81 on the AFI's top 100 list, and it didn't even make the list in 1997. So it's a, a new addition to this list. The Apartment, let's take a listen. Say, Baxter, the way you're belting that stuff, you must have a pair of cast iron kidneys. Well, that's not me. I mean, it's just once in a while I have a few people in for a drink. As a matter of fact, you must be an iron man all around. From what I hear through the walls, you got something going for you every night. I'm sorry if it gets noisy. Sometimes there's a twine-night doubleheader. A nebbish like you. Yeah, well, I'll see you, Doc. You know, Baxter, I'm doing some research at the Columbia Medical Center. I wonder if you could do us a favor. Me? When you make out your will and the way you're going, you should. Would you mind leaving your body to the university? All right, Amy, who's in it? What's it about? The Apartment. This is our fourth Billy Wilder on the list. We've done Double Indemnity. We've done Sunset Boulevard. We've done Some Like It Hot. And here we are with the film he made right after Sun Like It Hot, 
the apartment. And here in the apartment, he reteams with his star of Some Like It Hot, Jack Lemmon, for a role that he wrote himself as Calvin Clifford, a man who works in a giant insurance agency and curries favor with the executives right above him, people like Fred McMurray, by loaning out his bachelor apartment to all of these men so they can go in and have affairs with their mistresses while he walks the streets of New York alone and cold and hungry and realizing that all of his neighbors think that he is a horrible, dastardly Lothario. And this all works out fine until Fred McMurray starts bringing over the girl that he has a crush on, Shirley MacLaine, as Fran Kubelik, who runs the elevator at their giant building. What will he do? How will his conscience fight against the capitalist machine? You know, Amy, you mentioned it's our fourth Billy Wilder, and I came in to this podcast being a fan, and he was one of the first people that I felt uh, a kinship with as a kid because it was going backwards in time to kind of find these directors that, you know, were before what I was watching now, and him and Preston Sturges hold a very special place in my heart. I think that Preston Sturges' films often feel similar, in the same vein uh, to a certain extent, whereas Billy Wilder's films really are incredibly different. We've talked about four films and we've talked a lot on this podcast about do we need more than one film from one director? Is it that important? And here is a director where I would definitely make a case like Kubrick. You do. I I, I think that he he really just nails different genres so well and they become kind of like this, uh, the apex of them in many ways. Yeah, I mean, his body of work is so, so broad and so astonishing. I could see myself making tiny tweaks. You know, when I go through his list, I'm like, I do love Sunset Boulevard. I could be at peace if whatever happened to Baby Jane was on that list instead, which is probably sacrilegious because I know that movie is schlock. However, I do also deeply love it. And it is my favorite movie about classic Hollywood actresses gone to seed. And, uh, you know, and I think like when we have the Maltese Falcon I could live in a world where we doesn't where we don't have double indemnity, but I also love both of those films. I love them completely, but right. we, we have our noir covered, of course, in a way. Um, and you know that I I kind of grumbled a little about some like it hot, just because I feel like it doesn't show off my girl Marilyn to the best of her ability, right. which is why I love a, a gentleman prefer blondes. Okay, so I guess now here I am coming in and calling and slashing and burning. But the apartment, I find it surprising that this film is only eighty-one on the list. I would have guessed that of his of his body of work, this would be much much higher, yeah. and that it wouldn't have even been a new addition. To me, the apartment feels like his classic. I know. I was kind of shocked at that too. This is like the quintessential fun comedy that has you know a, a, a kind of real pathos to it. And Jack Lemmon is superb in it. I think Jack Lemmon's better in this than he is in Some Like It Hot. I love Some Like It Hot. I totally agree. I totally agree. But he's a character here. I mean, I feel like this is the film that to me has a lot of depth that I don't always see in Some Like It Hot. Right. And it has the the humor that you don't see in Sunset Boulevard. Absolutely. And it also has like the Lothario, like sexual predatory nature that you have Fred McMurray delivering in Double Indemnity and also getting chewed up and suckered in by, by the, oh, my Barbara Stanwyck, my girl. Oh, she's so good. I mean, this so, film, so good. I feel like this film condenses everything he does so well. I agree. And he's so economical in the way that he just accomplishes everything that he wants to do right from the get-go. I mean, the voiceover narration at the top of the movie um, is something that I know a lot of people will say, like, especially in writing, like, you shouldn't use voiceover, use it sparingly. And, you know, he really just pulls you into this world immediately. That opening shot of... Jack Lemmon in the office, 
that visual of him lost in that sea of desks, which is actually a a visual trick. I mean, that was shot in a, a really wide lens and they uh, in the front, in the foreground, they're normal-sized desks, and as you go backwards, they're smaller desks with uh, smaller people and even children in the background, just to give you the scope of this office of essentially worker bees, right? And the only way to distinguish yourself in this group of worker bees uh, is to kind of uh, curry favor with the people above you, and I think that makes you automatically sympathetic to Jack Lemmon's character, right? Like he's giving his key to these people and you have you understand right away that he has to do this. It doesn't make him a bad guy because it is a little bit of a a sleazy premise at the, at the you know the root of this movie it's like this guy gives keys you know he's not being coerced into it he's not being bullied into it he's at, definitely being bullied into it what well, are you talking about once he starts doing it they're like if you don't give me this key right but i'm saying the prequel film like i feel like he offered this up no one came to him and said like hey do you have an apartment that we can use i feel like he kind of in my interpretation of this you know, he's a guy who may have overheard something, tried to get in with his boss, and was like, you know, I, I do have an apartment on the uh, the Upper West Side if you ever want to use it. You know, and then that's and then his it, explanation in the film, though. What does he say in the film? He says in the film that he very generously heard that somebody needed to change into a tuxedo after work. He was like, "Take my key, change into your tuxedo," not realizing that change into your tuxedo might have meant something else to this right. guy. And then once that guy spread the word about his tuxedo change, then they started to come to him, and then he couldn't say no. So to me, I think he's a really interesting character. Say not so much in corruption, but what happens in a in a sexually harassment right of geared workplace where you are the man who also is in a position of being unable to say no. I guess what I what I see with him though is he is not just like uh, a gullible guy. He is complicit in this. He is ambitious. He He's is definitely doing complicit. He yeah. is doing this to get ahead. Like yes, you're right. It was, you know, maybe uh, a situation that he got into unwittingly, but something that he realized very quickly was something that he needed to continue to get to where he wanted to be, which is what he, and he clearly continues to do it. Yes, it gets more and more complicated as more and more bosses come in. And as he, you know, kind of wants to have his own life, which is hard to do when you don't have access right. to your actual apartment. But like what you're saying, it's not that he has a moral problem with it. He right. has a logistical problem, which is he's exactly. sleepy and he wants to go to bed. And he never thinks for a second really about the girlfriends themselves that are being taken there or the wives. He does no. not care about any of that. No, he's not. I mean, so he's not like a squeaky clean hero, which I really appreciate. No, I mean, really the character arc is this this man learning to have morals. I mean, and, you know, and even that arc is a little nebulous because it's only because he's involved in the relationship that he's having morals. It's not like, hey, I find this wrong. It's just like, well, now that it affects me directly, I, I do find this wrong. I mean, it already was affecting him directly, but, you know, he fell in love with one of the girls. It wasn't like he's making a, uh, a giant stand, but I think he does uh, open himself a little bit more. It's true. And it is this film that I think really put into focus for me what has been Billy Wilder's interest in all of the movies that we've been talking about. Because there's a lot of touchstones in here that he's been repeating. Mm -hmm. A setting in the insurance world, for example, which is exactly what Fred McMurray was doing in Double Indemnity. Um, the idea of people selling themselves to make sure that they're financially okay, which was a huge element in well, Some Like It Hot. I do want to talk to you about this, like, this idea of like, don't you think the idea of insurance feels so... 
pedestrian. It's almost empty. Like his life, I mean, in the opening monologue, we hear he is busy looking at other people's lives. Like he's an actuary, right? You know, to a certain degree, there's an element of that. Like he knows all these facts about different things. And I just feel like it's, it is a generic stamp. Like what's the most generic job you can do? And excuse me to anybody who works in the insurance field. I'm just saying that I feel like it's, it's a way to kind of office job. It is quote unquote office job. Like, you know, and I feel like there's something interesting about that because it makes the character very um, relatable. Like, okay, I work in an office too. You know, it's just, there's nothing, he's not a lawyer. He's not a doctor. It's just a very much like I'm at a desk and I want to get to a bigger desk. And then I want to get to a desk that has a door and I want to get to a desk that has a window. And then I want to get to a desk that has two windows in the corner. I mean, like, you know, like his, his, uh, you know, it's a very simple idea to kind of get into. I feel like it's almost like a placeholder thing that we do with a lot of comedic characters. They have, they're a worker bee, they're a this, they're bland. Well, yes, but, I mean, let's listen to yeah. that intro. But what I think is also important is that what insurance does is it puts a value on human lives. On November 1st, 1959, the population of New York City was 8,042,783. If you laid all these people end to end, figuring an average height of five feet, six and a half inches, they would reach from Times Square to the outskirts of Karachi, Pakistan. I know facts like this because I've worked for an insurance company, Consolidated Life of New York. We're one of the top five companies in the country. Our home office has 31,259 employees, which is more than the entire population of uh, Natchez, Mississippi. I work on the 19th floor. Ordinary Policy Department, Premium Accounting Division, Section W, Desk Number 861. My name is C.C. Baxter, C for Calvin, C for Clifford, however most people call me Bud. I've been with Consolidated for three years and ten months, and my take-home pay is ninety-four seventy a week. And you have him just listing all of these numbers, and I think what the film sets this tone of really up clear at the front is that in this modern world, people are just numbers. You know, they're mm. statistics, they're facts. You live in this building where... You're grouped by what time you show up to work, by what floor you live on, so that they don't clog the elevators because humans are just a traffic impediment. And I think, honestly, in a way, that idea, this idea that human beings are just cogs in an expensive machine, is maybe the core thing that really unites all of Wilder's work. You know, like, how valuable is a human life, really? What are we really worth? Well, I mean, are we always... worth more when we're murdered by our wife and her lover? Are we worth more when we are trying to buy our affections with, like, a, with a millionaire? Are we worth more when we're famous? It's it's about disposal of life, right? You you It's like you wring out the sponge. Once the water's gone, you're, you know, I mean, I guess that you don't... You throw it away. That's not a good analogy. But I'm saying that the idea, like, once you're dried up, you're dried up. If, whether it's, you know, your, your lead character in Sunset Boulevard, she is dried up. The writer has dried up. The, you know, the musicians in Sunlight Hot, they have dried up. They can't get a gig. They've dried up, you know. Um, and, you know, you, you keep on seeing this idea of even in Double Indemnity, she's dried up. Like, All right, I got everything I got out of my of my husband. I'm ready to move on to the next thing. So it's everyone's getting ready to move on to the next thing. What I think about this intro, though, that is interesting on top of this, I mean, just from a character perspective, it also is someone who knows a lot about people and life, but is not living these things. Like he does, he's not living a life, but he can tell you everything about the, what the average way that everyone lives a life is. And I think that that's a really. I love that just as far as informing the character. He is not living a life. He's not, there's no love here. There's no, there's no anything. Even though his, uh, you know, he's a lonely 
a lonely guy who can tell you a lot about what other people are doing and when their birthdays are and, and you know, who got their appendicitis removed or when they had appendicitis, I should say. Um, you know, but I think that that's, it just shows how isolated he is. And maybe to what you're saying is how isolated the human experience is when you are without anyone there, you know, like, and, and that I think is his awakening is kind of finding love. Well, yeah, I think this whole movie is about like isolation and distancing and the way people call each other Mr. and Miss and everybody mm-hmm. seems separate from each other and formal. The way that he is at desk 861. And even in that intro, you hear that most people call him Bud, which is not a nickname that should have anything to do with the name Calvin Clifford. And right. you realize that he's called Bud or Buddy Boy just because none of the other bosses even care to learn his name. Right. Doesn't matter. They don't need to know his name. He is Buddy Boy. It's a really sad state of affairs. He's a sad character. I mean, you know, one of the first images we see of him, you know, he's in a sea of desks. And then that kind of moves into him being alone on a street corner waiting for his apartment to, you know, to be vacant so he can go back inside. And by the way, let's just talk about the sanitary nature of of what he is doing here. Like, are you cleaning that up? Is he sleeping in those sheets? I mean, clearly, like he's cleaning up, he's eating a little bit of their food, he's doing all that sort of stuff. But What's going on there? How many pairs of sheets does he have? I want to get into the nitty-gritty of the of of really what is happening there. Like 45-minute, you know, uh bone zone sessions and then he's got to go in there and he's doing a lot of work and they're not they're not paying for liquor, they're not paying for anything. Uh, I just was like thinking about that part of his life being really sad, which you don't see in the movie at all. I mean, you see him cleaning up the dishes, but like imagine that just going in and just Having to clean up everybody's, you know, junk? I'm filling in the blanks of what you mean by junk, but that's exactly what I think drew Wilder to this Back movie. in the day, they had those, you know, those uh, fur condoms, and it was different. You know, they didn't have latex back then. <laughs> and thus, all of us were, were spawned. Yes, it's so beautiful. No, but that's exactly it. Like, Wilder says that he was inspired by this movie that he saw in 1946 that was called Brief Encounter. Mm-hmm. And that was a story about this affair between a married man and a married woman. And there's a point in the movie where that couple, this illicit couple, goes to one of their friend's apartments and they have a tiny little affair in there. And Wilder said when he was watching this movie, he wasn't really caught up in the couple, but he kept thinking about that friend. What happens to that friend when he comes home and his bed is still warm? Does this lonely guy get into this warm bed? So I think by saying warm bed over and over again, he's implying he doesn't change the sheets, right? Oh, man. Right. But then also, this being 1946, this wasn't a movie that he could make. You know, it was way too scandalous for the times. No one wanted to do a movie about adultery. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, it was dangerous to even do it in 1960, but in that kind of course between 1946 and 1960, some other things happened that really influenced him, including a murder. Yes, I heard about this. This is really interesting. This is like a big story that happened here in Hollywood, right, with this uh, an agent, right, Jennings Lang. Yeah, here, let's listen to it. In the mid-50s, there was a very highly publicized incident involving the producer Walter Wanger and the agent Jennings Lang. Lang had been sleeping with Wanger's wife, the actress Joan Bennett, and Wanger shot Lang. Billy Wilder was very, very aware of the scandal, and everybody knew Jennings Lang would often take Joan Bennett to an apartment out of the way. And it turned out that Lang had been using the apartment of one of his subordinates at the talent agency. So here suddenly the notion came, well, you know, maybe this subordinate agent was using his apartment to help his career get ahead. And that intrigued Billy Wilder, and he says that was the genesis of the apartment. 
I love that. I mean, and I think that, you know, we talk a lot about how, you know, things in the media help kind of these movies get into production because it all of a sudden becomes a little bit more acceptable because people are talking about it, which is true to what happens now. Yeah, and actually, if you were tantalized by that and you want to Google this murder to figure out more, it's really frustrating mm-hmm. because Joan Bennett is very famous. Her sister was Constance Bennett. They were this kind of powerhouse twin yeah. sisters, like the the Maras, mm-hmm. I guess, of the day. But if you Google uh, Joan Bennett murder, Google just thinks that you're trying to talk about the John Bennett murder, and it's uh, so irritating. Tough. So Google, get it together. Some of us care about classic actresses. But anyways, the guy who gets shot, he's fine. They shoot him in the leg. Okay. Well, you know, also another element of the plot was taken from the co-writer of the actual screenplay, I.A.L. Diamond. Um, his friend returned home after breaking up with his girlfriend to find that she committed suicide in his bed, uh, which is a very big plot point uh, for this movie. Kind of the second act of this movie is, you know, Jack Lemmon coming home and seeing Shirley MacLaine has tried to overdose. And I was thinking about that, like... To do that part of the plot is a pretty it's a pretty dark element of the film because the movie feels light and fun and a little bit of like a comedy of errors like or or like three's company esque right like oh boy you know uh, his boss is doing this and now he's in love but when she takes that uh, sleeping pills and she overdoses it really brings the movie to a much darker place. And I think it goes to show you what we were talking about in the beginning, which is like the loneliness of these people. And these people are, are a little bit, uh, you know, she's being thrown away and then she throws herself away and she's in love. You know, it's like this darkness that I don't think you often see in, I guess like I'm calling this movie a comedy. I think it is a comedy, uh, but this definitely brings it to a different level. Yeah. I mean, after that point, it's like, is it a comedy anymore? What is happening? And it, you know, the movies have always had suicides. It's one of those huge tropes. Like if a character did something bad, especially during the production code era, they can't really get out of it unless they go to jail, they get murdered, or they commit suicide. Mm-hmm. So a lot of fallen women, you know, quote unquote fallen women of the time are always like throwing themselves off cliffs, you know, and it's like, oh no, she <laughs> went into the river and we'll never know what happened or what she might have ever done with her life. She did that one bad thing. Uh, but here... You're not supposed to feel that way about Shirley. And I think that is one of the things that makes it so shocking. She's not even, she's doing the same things a fallen woman, quote unquote, would have done in the silent era. But we love her. We have enough time to love her before we find out that she's in love with a married man. And when she hurts herself, we suddenly don't want what the movies had always given us, which is punishment for a girl who has sex out of wedlock. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because the idea of that she's doing wrong. She's not doing wrong. Like she is a single woman who has been clearly wooed by Sheldrake, uh, played by Fred McMurray, who I love. I love this. I love bad dude, Fred McMurray, uh, who I think definitely has like a BDE, uh, you know, we're talking, we put him and Jimmy Stewart together. I think, you know, I think McMurray's going to give you more of that BDE more often than not, but, uh, I think Jimmy will make you coffee in the morning and Fred will be like, Oh, Here's a quarter. Gone. I mean, oh, by the, the subway. Speaking of quarter and Fred McMurray, just to say one thing, he is notoriously very frugal and very stingy because in one scene, his character tips a shoeshine man by flipping him a quarter. Uh, but when he couldn't accomplish it, Wilder said, you know, do like a half dollar instead. And McMurray was like, no, I would never give him 50 cents. I, I can't play the scene. 
And, and and like which I love like that's so MacGruber. I know it's it, it's so ridiculous, but but <laughs> well, I mean, it's I funny that also, we, though, yeah. that, that then Wilder started to screw with him because Wilder was annoyed because you know Wilder is fastidious. Wilder's right. like you do what I say. I mean, all the time when people would ask Wilder what their character's motivation was, especially if it was you know say Shirley MacLaine, yeah, he would say your motivation is to say the words that I wrote down. So he took Fred McMurray's recalcitrance really personally, and he did this thing. You know the scene where Fred McMurray gives Shirley MacLaine a do- hundred dollars, yeah. So on that day, Billy Wilder was like, we need to use real money. We have to use real money for this. I don't want to use prop money. Here's $100 for my own wallet. Here, Fred, take this $100 and give it to her. Right. So Fred's like, okay. He get, he gives her the $100. The scene happens. He takes $100. He gives it back to Wilder. And Wilder waits till the end of the day to say, Fred, where's my money? And Fred's like, I gave it to you. And Wilder's like, no, you didn't. And Fred is panicking. He's like, I gave you $100. Uh, I gave you $100. I know I gave you $100. And everybody is just standing there like, I don't know if you did, man. So he finally <laughs> takes $100 out of his own wallet and gives it to Wilder. And then Wilder's like, haha, I got you, you cheap ass. That's hilarious. <laughs> I love that they just were fucking around with him. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's interesting that you view Shirley MacLaine, not you, but like, you know, that we envision the person who is cheating with the married man is doing wrong, right? It really is because he is, Sheldrake is the one that is doing this. When Fran tells Shirley MacLaine's character, like, oh, no, he's done this a lot. Like, as a matter of fact, he's got so many different women. It's it's ridiculous. You know, it's he's really the the cat. He's the bad guy in this movie, but but we it, come from this world of femme yes. fatales and vamps and yeah. like the woman who steals the man. She's the yeah. predator. And but she never acts like that. Like you know, from the minute we meet her, she you know when we see that first date with her and him or that kind of rendezvous at that tiki bar, which I so wanted to go to. Me uh, too. Oh and she's gosh. so sick of it. And I'm like, I'll date Fred if he oh takes my gosh. me there. But I want to listen to a little bit of that date she goes on yeah. with him because. What's really striking about this scene is not that this is the sexy rendezvous, is that she's really sad. Evening, lady. Nice to see you again. Thank you. How long has it been, Fran? A month? Six weeks. Who's counting? I missed you. Like old times. Same booth, same song. It's been hell. Same sauce, sweet and sour. You don't know what it's like standing next to you in that elevator day after day. Good morning, Miss Kubelik. Good night, Mr. Sheldrake. I'm still crazy about you, Fran. Let's not start on that again, Jeff, please. I'm just beginning to get over it. I don't believe you. 
Look, Jeff, we had two wonderful months this summer, but that was it. Happens all the time. Wife and kids go away to the country and the boss has a fling with the secretary or the manicurist or the elevator girl. Come September, the picnic's over. Goodbye. The kids go back to school. The boss goes back to the wife and the girl. They don't make these shrimp like they used to. I love even just the detail of sweet and sour because even that seems thematically resonant. You know, being with him is sweet yeah. and it's sour. And it's crunch. It's everything all at once. But by the I, way, I did have one problem with that scene. I felt like the music was in Congress to that bar. Like, who wants to hear that music in a tiki bar? I want to hear a little bit more tropical, you know, vibe. I don't want to, you know, I'm in a Chinese restaurant. I want to hear that kind of slow playing piano. I want to, you know, I want to bring a little bit of a different influence into it. I mean, I mean, I hear that, but that is also them trying to layer in the apartment theme. Mm, you know, this sure, theme that sure. Billy Wilder was obsessed with and I had to kind of put in there by having it actually be part of the scene. Okay, yes. Listen, you can open your own tiki bar. But yeah, no, that song in the background that becomes the the theme to the apartment. It's a very melancholy theme. Shocking. I mean, no, yeah, yeah, of course. No, but it's a theme that Billy Wilder remembered from a movie he had seen way back in the day and he couldn't remember what it was called. So he was driving everybody on the set bananas because he would walk up to them he'd be like blah 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 and he's tone deaf so he's like you know the song get me that song blah 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 uh, they couldn't figure it out they couldn't figure it out and finally they realized there's a song called jealous lover from a movie called the apart the romantic age but oh, it is now wow. just called the theme of the apartment okay but he found it, it wait it, so it's it not an original composition it's not an original composition but it became i mean the romantic age is not the hugest hit so i think he's able to fold it into his own identity and then have that piano player who we see from an album that Shirley MacLaine gives to Fred MacLaine. His name is Rickshaw Boy. He gets to make it the staple of the tiki bar, which... Uh, all right, all right, there you uh, go, yeah. I To your point, though, I mean, what do, you, do we want to hear Deo? Not Deo. Deo I mean, that, I wouldn't want to hear, like, a, more of a Caribbean. I'm talking she's more like, of an Asian she's influence. She's, like, killing herself to the song Deo? No, I don't, I mean, I, I look... It would be good. Like, come. Like, no, I'd be like, me want to go home. Oh. And she opens the pill bottle. <laughs> Dale. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, you really. The pill bottle goes on. Daylight come. Boom. And you wait. And I want to go home dead. Yeah. That's it. It kind of works. Well, all that being said, I love this scene. I love this kind of introduction to her because we see Sean McLean as this kind of peppy up happy person and then you actually see how she really is feeling it kind of helps build into the second half of the movie which is i think a lot more emotional and and i love the general conceit of this film which is it takes what we expect the femme fatale the threes company premise and kind of turns it on its ear and and bases it more in reality what would really go on in a situation like this and i think you get so much rich uh things from these characters and it's surprising that Billy Wilder was very strict, especially with Shirley MacLaine, about improvising. It was say the exact line. Like Jack Lemmon could do no wrong. He gave Jack Lemmon a lot of leeway. We'll probably talk about that a little bit later. But Shirley MacLaine, notoriously, he rode her so hard. And I wonder if maybe riding her that hard, and this is not something that we're unfamiliar with on the show, directors riding actresses incredibly hard and giving them great performances, but riding her that hard gave her this little bit of a a broken quality because I think they did that elevator scene like 60 times because she missed like a word, you know, like he just was 
on her nonstop. Didn't like her ad libs. Didn't like anything about her, and and kind of kept her in this this box. Yeah, I mean, Shirley MacLaine seems to really love this movie, but she does not seem to have loved Wilder. She has really complicated feelings about it. I mean, it seems from like yeah. everything she's ever talked about about this set. You know, she said that Wilder tended to hold women at arm's length was something she said. That on the set she felt like he was always giving all of his attention to Jack Lemmon, and he was really focused on what she called the indignities of the male characters. That he understood Jack Lemmon so much. I mean, I think he, he understood loved- Fred. And he wanted to make those characters alive. But she said that she didn't feel like he understood women at all themselves. And that if you look at his movies, what he tends to really write, especially in the past leading up to years, nice housewives, nagging housewives, or prostitutes was how she characterized it. Wow. And I think that this character feels so real is a lot of her just bringing, bringing energy to it that he wasn't handing her. I think that he tried to make that character – here's my theory. Mm-hmm. I think he shaped her character mostly in the style and in the casting of her. Because when you look around the world of the apartment, most of the women are big, bosomy, well, gigantic that, hair. That joke about Marilyn Monroe. I mean, that, that character is like, – she's doing a Marilyn Monroe impression yeah. in that scene. It's great. It's actually a very good Marilyn Monroe impression. Yes, Can I thought so too. Can we listen to it yeah. for a second? Like, his Marilyn Monroe is amazing. It makes me wonder if he wished he had hired her because we talk so much about how Marilyn yeah. kept flubbing lines in Some Like It Hot. Listen, kid, I can't pass this up. She looks like Marilyn Monroe. (laughs) I'm already in bed, and I've taken a sleeping pill, so I'm afraid the answer is no. Look, Baxter, we're making out the monthly efficiency rating, and I'm putting you in the top ten. Now, uh, you don't want to lock yourself up, do you? Of course not, but how can I be efficient in the office if I don't get enough sleep at night? It's only 11, and I just want the place for 45 minutes. I'm getting lonely. Who are you talking to anyway? My mother. Oh, that's sweet. That's real sweet. Ooh. Make it 30 minutes. What do you say, bud? Huh? Huh? By the way, she um, was meant, I think that same actress was meant to be wearing one of Marilyn Monroe's actual dresses, but she thought it was too low cut, so she wouldn't put it on. She said oh. she felt too naked. Well, do you think this is a dig at Marilyn Monroe? This comes out in 1960. Uh, Some Like It Hot was 1959. He clearly had a big problem with her on that movie. Like, it's not a dig, but it's sort of like, like the way that his character refers to her, like 30 minutes instead of 45. Like, she's too dumb. Like, I feel like he, you know, he paints her as the exactly what I think Billy Wilder's experience was. Like, she looks the part, but you don't want to spend any time with her. Well, yeah. I mean, I feel like this movie, especially because Shirley MacLaine and the other women who worked on it were really open about how difficult it was to work with Wilder, yeah. is almost a corrective to our episode on Some Like It Hot. Because in that one, everybody kind of ganged up on Marilyn. She was one of the only real women in the in the movie, one yeah. of the only female characters. Yeah. And so the history of that movie is she fucked up. She was nervous. She sucked. She couldn't do it. And here, you know, Shirley MacLaine has really taken on this kind of legacy of being like, listen, here's the deal with Wilder. He grew up in Vienna after the war. The first girl he was ever in love with turned out to be a prostitute. It broke him forever. In Vienna, you know, prostitution is legal. So it was more just like his dignity was broken. He was hurt by it. So he didn't criminalize prostitution, but he had a real just view of that's what women are. That's who they are. Yeah. And she says, McLean, that she felt like it. That, I mean, that experience affected him so much that he stopped sleeping, he stopped eating, he quit college, and that's how he wound up becoming a writer, and that's how he wound up getting to Hollywood in the first place, was this one heartbreak. Wow. And so she felt like on set, yeah, like he had no interest in the women except for them doing exactly what he said. Well, and, and he controlled 
Shirley MacLaine here, at least the same way that I feel like Sheldrake controlled her. You know, he only let her see 40 pages of the script because he didn't want her to know like where her character went, you know, uh, and she thought, oh, it's just because the script wasn't finished. But no, he was like manipulating her. He was from moment one kind of, you know, setting the ground rules for how this works. And, you know, as we're hearing all these stories time and time again from many different directors that are doing this to the women in their film. They're working out some sort of aggression. They're in a powerful position. And it's, you know, I don't want to like, use this term lightly, but it's it's a it's a form of emotional abuse, you know, and and I think a lot of the times the women that are the most abused in these situations are playing women who are at an emotional crossroads, whether that's Chinatown or whether that's, you know, this film, like you see it on their performance. And I think it's smart. You could make an argument, well, that's what his plan was. You know, he created this, but it also didn't take away the acting of it all because clearly Jack Lemmon is not this guy, but yet, you know, you don't have to, you know, put him in that position either. Yeah, it's always the distrust that gets to me, that right. directors don't trust their actresses to be able to do the performance without being legitimately terrorized. Yeah. You know, which... Shirley doesn't quite say that that's what happened, but I'll let her and I will also let Hope Holiday talk about what it was like working on the set. Let's start with Hope, who plays Miss Margie McDougal. She's the woman who's married to the jockey that um, for a minute, it almost seems like Jack Lemmon might rendezvous with and actually use yes. the apartment himself. Billy Wilder and Izzy Diamond would never let anybody change a word of dialogue in their script. And I had one line where I had to say, poor Mickey, he's kind of like a little chihuahua. The line was, he's like a little chihuahua. So they said, Hope, he's like a little chihuahua. He's not kind of like a little chihuahua. I said, okay. Poor Mickey, he's kind of like a little chihuahua. Diamond jumped up over the uh, side of the brownstone, over the stairs. He jumped up over the side and he said, uh-uh, uh-uh. Like a little chihuahua, not kind of. I said, okay. Mm. He's so cute. Five foot two, 99 pounds, like a little chihuahua. Billy was not exactly acquainted with feminist equality, let's put it that way. And he could be very harsh with women. I think that's one of the things that, that bothered Marilyn. She was afraid of him, and so she would be late and stuff like that. We were shooting about what it's like to be in love with a married man, and the script read, you sit there and you make yourself a cup of instant coffee while he rushes out to catch the train. I'm half Canadian, half Virginian. I say out. So I said, while well, you sit there and he rushes off to catch the Ah, oh, Billy wouldn't, I mean, he screamed and he sent the script girl in. No, no, no. And he really was intimidating when you did not say the right word. I mean, I think that's really interesting, her putting the emotional tenor of the set into context for Marilyn as well. Right. And Marilyn, who was so paranoid about getting it right, who had so many thoughts in her head about her anxiety about not being up to snuff for anybody and being, yeah. you know, just a beautiful fraud and nobody taking her seriously. I can I see now her point of view better because of Shirley sticking up for yeah. what those sets were like. Well, I mean, I also feel like Shirley is a much more together person, especially later in her life. I don't know what she was like at that point, but, you know, I feel like she definitely uh, is, is just a stronger, uh, just a stronger person who maybe has a different perspective on it now because she can, you know, she's actually grown. 
Yeah, but, you know, to the kind of that whole point of how Billy's casting of her almost is the character. Like, he didn't right. – she feels like he didn't direct her very much when she got there. Yeah, like, everybody else looks like a blonde bimbo. And then you have Shirley MacLaine, short brown hair, no makeup, and he's contrasting her to all the other girls in the picture. You know, there's, yeah. there is a little bit of that, like – you're not basic like all these other girls. You're not like the right, other right, girls. Right, you're yeah. special because you don't have you don't put hairspray in your hair. And by the way, she really does stick out. I mean, you know, and Fred McMurray kind of says it to her in the first scene, like, oh, you cut your hair. You know, it's like there's there is I mean, you she is positioned as someone who is making choices. And and I feel like she isn't just like all the other girls at Sheldrake is with. She's trying to get away from it. She's trying to make changes. She does want to go on a date with Jack Lemon, but she gets pulled back in. It's a very interesting romantic you know, love triangle because you see the push and pull of of both relationships and and where she is at because she's not ready for she's not ready for a different really you know she's not ready to get out of it fully but she wants to you know. But I also think Jack Lemon isn't really capable of giving her a better relationship at least not at the beginning because he's treating her in a lot of ways similar ish to the other men. He's nice. He wants to right. take her to the play, but he never seems at the beginning to be that in tune with who she really is. You know, I think there's that really striking scene where he gets a promotion and he just wants to talk to her about her hat or his new hat. Right. And he he's not paying any attention to the fact that she's miserable. Oh, yeah. And I you mean, see that he's ignoring her in this. Like, listen to, let's listen to that. This is a bad day for me. Oh, I understand. Christmas family and all that. Yeah. I'd better get back to my elevator. I don't want to be fired. You don't have to worry about that. I've got quite a bit of influence in personnel. You know, Mr. Sheldrake? Why? Well, he and I are like that. He sent me a Christmas card. See? Makes a cute picture. I thought maybe I'd put in a word for you. Would Mr. Sheldrake get you a little promotion? How would you like to be an elevator starter? I'm afraid there are too many girls around here with seniority over me. No problem. Why don't we discuss it sometime over the holidays? I can call you and pick you up. We have the big unveiling. Are you sure this is the right way to wear this? I think so. Here. You don't think it's tilted a little too much? I mean, after all, this is a conservative firm. I don't want people to think I'm an entertainer. What's the matter? Um, the mirror, it's broken. Yes, I know. I like it that way. Makes me look the way I feel. I mean, that line makes me look the way if she is telling the world and yes. he drops it. Everybody drops that idea. They don't hear her. But no, I, I disagree with you because I feel like the way when she says that, it hits him and you see it on his face. And he you exist with him for a few more moments as he kind of is like, oh, like he, she wakes him up out of that trance. Oh, I don't know. I think he's processing... The hat? The pain to him. I think he's like, okay. oh, she's taken. I don't think he's hearing she's sad yet. You know, I don't think he's listening to her emotions. He's still he's saying like, that oh, zone that, of like, like she's the acting. girl. Like, like he's so you think that he's just looking at it going, oh, my God, she's the girl that's been in my house. I have no chance with her. I thought I did. He's on such a high, you know, at this Christmas party, which, by the way, you know, they shot that Christmas party scene in like one take. It was Whoa. like, and it was shot like two days before Christmas Eve, which is even, uh, you know. It's uh, wild to see an office that debaucherous. I know, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it really reminded me of uh, Scrooge. There's a great uh, Christmas party scene in Scrooge. But yeah, I um, think he is just processing how this affects him and not listening to her because when he shows back up at his apartment after he gets, you know, drunk right. and he sees her at at 
on the bed passed out. I mean, what I find so brilliant about this script is that this is the character who's supposed to love. We know what has happened to her. We know what he doesn't know, that she's right. knocked out on pills. And Billy Wilder makes us watch him yell at her because he doesn't he hasn't realized yet what's happening. And that's like I think one of the lowest things his character does, even if it is all a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. But from the way he yells at her, he's mad. He's not he doesn't care that she's upset. He's mad at her for hurting his feelings. All right, Miss Kubelik, get up. Uh, past checking out time. The management would appreciate it if you get the hell out of here. I used to like you. I used to like you a lot. Well, it's all over between us, so beat it. O-U-T out! Come on, wake up. And then he sees the pills. And then he realizes I don't think it's that, that bad. No, I think I think Why is that bad? Because he's really just thinking about himself. He's still no, being No, really he's selfish. not. A this thousand person, percent. What this woman is about? having sex in his bed. And he comes on and he's like, oh, God damn it. Like, she's not, like, in his mind, she's asleep in his bed after she just had sex with Sheldrake. And he's like, you know what? Not, it's not, it's one thing for her to like, to like, for me not to be a part of the picture anymore. But now, like, she won't even get out of my bed. No now way. I have to like. He says, I used to like you. Yeah. Past tense, before he even got into that room. And the only thing that has changed is he found out she's in love with somebody else. But that, that's when he stopped liking her. It was when he's like, okay, that's yeah. off the table for that's me. That's all he cares about is himself and whether she likes him. Well, because even after they straighten this up a little bit, he goes back to trying to act like one of the big bossy men at, at, at the building. He's like, oh, you know, I take a girl out of have a couple laughs and he's just like well I'm going on other dates and he's still imitating the bad behavior right but I guess like he never he's not that much better than her but I but I but guess than the other guys but I guess what I'm saying is I I can see your point that he hasn't really taken that she's sad but I think there's an other element of it where that doesn't show him as being a bad like that just shows him as frustrated like he is thinking that he has a relationship there that may and I do think that there's an element where she is leading him on because she is she doesn't know exactly what she wants from that relationship. I think she's kind of interested. I don't think she wants very much. I think she doesn't, she's just like willing to go to the theater with him. Right. He's not treating her like a human being yet. Why should she, she has no reason to place him above the other men in the office. But, because he's still just like, hey baby, I'll get you a promotion. Like we see him but alone. He, but she does say that she doesn't have a boyfriend, like that it's going, like there is a, there is a, a moment of slight agreement that, oh, this is a date. It's not like, you know, it's not like he's. I mean, I, look. I think there's a there's a little. I understand why this character is frustrated, right? She stands him up. She first she tells him, "Yeah, I would like to do that with you," and I'm not really seeing anybody. Then she stands him up. Then they kind of connect again, and and he's like, "Oh, this is kind of working." And then she's like, "Then he realizes, oh, she's actually having sex with my boss." I'm an idiot. I'm a fucking dummy. Like, you know, I think we all can identify with those moments where you're like, oh, I thought I was reading something. Okay, I'm not reading that. Okay. And then you feel defensive on that moment. And then he walks in, and to add insult to injury, she just had sex in his bed. The girl that he likes just had sex in his bed. I know she didn't, but to his point of view, I think that the, I think he's warranted. I don't think that he's woke. I don't think that he really cares about her feelings, but I feel like he is warranted in the way that he behaves. Okay, but I think... I think we can agree on this point. Yeah. From her perspective, he is no better than anybody else. No, absolutely not. I don't think he is a classy guy. I don't think he's a. I don't think he's an upstanding guy. I think I. I, I think he is complicit in all of this. And I think that that, like I said, his 
It's a little bit nebulous, but at the end of the day, he learns to be a better person through taking care of her. It's again, it's a little wonky-ish because like she's kind of in a misery situation. He's like, don't leave the apartment. You know, so there's there's that going on. And also like he's kind of stalking her because he pulled her card and knew about what she had. Like there's elements here that are not fully on the up and up. I mean, if I was her, I would never go on a date with him. Sure. I mean, a guy finds her own home address? No way. Man. I know, and then he knew it. There are elements that are like, stalkery about him. Uh, uh, yes, <laughs> but I do feel like he seemingly is, like, when he has a date with her, there's a difference between Robert De Niro, a taxi driver, like, I want to have a date with Sybil Shepherd because I saw her at a place, versus the way, like, he seems genuinely excited to go out with her. And where I think, think the other men seem like all they want to do is get laid. There is, and this is, I mean, not that this is a giant difference and this should be applauded, but it seemed like he looked, was looking forward to having a fun night with her, having a night on the town, going to see a show. And, you know, maybe that was all to the end game of getting to the bone zone. But uh, I do believe that he was kind of like into her and wanted to like, you know, like I think he had something to give her more than just. He does want to marry. He would be open to the idea of marrying her. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I do think though, like, also, given the chance, he would happily take the Fred McMurray path to life. You, know? you think so? Yeah. He gets the office. He's one of the guys. He could marry her. And if things hadn't changed, like if he, if, if this suicide attempt hadn't happened, right. if she had just been single, they'd gone to the thing, and he married her, there's a world where 10 years from now, he's using one of his underlings' apartments. I mean, I don't read sexual from him at all. Like, I mean, and that, like, yes, the corporate structure that he's in, would he just be a self-fulfilling prophecy? Yeah, sure, maybe, whatever. But there's something oddly unsexual about him where the other men seem incredibly sexual. So I can't say, like, it's not a haze code thing. It's not a, it's, no, these men are. Are you saying he has little dick energy? Little dick energy. No, but I mean, like, I don't think that he's, like, motivated by that. I think he's, like, he's trying to get his head, uh, you know, like, I think in his mind, or at least the way I identified with him is, like, Look, he's making some compromises, but he's trying to get ahead. And the whole idea to get ahead is so he could be live a happy life and, and be married. And ha- like, I feel like that was his his goal is to like kind of have the American dream. Yeah, I mean, the film hits the loneliness much harder than his horniness. Yes, a- absolutely. Like, you feel like he wants somebody, and like in that moment with that other girl, like, oh, is he going to go home with her? Like, he doesn't. He's not leading with his dick. I guess. Like, I mean, you he's know, basically he's chaplain. He's basically chaplain in the gold rush. Well, by the way, this is what Billy Wilder called him. Oh, his really? Chaplain. Yeah. Did you know that? Like, no. Oh, yeah. He he's compared Billy Wilder compared Jack Lemmon to Chaplin. He's like, he can do no wrong. He is my chaplain, and that's why he really let him kind of improvise, go off script, find little fun things like you know the the pasta through the tennis racket, which getting felt punched. very gold rush to me. Yes. The way that he like. Acts like it's the most normal thing in the world to be serving pasta with a tennis racket. He, and he's so great in that scene. But the way he took the punch, I think, was also uh, the kind of a, a mistake. But Jack Lemmon really, you know, improvised, I think, a lot physically. And well, Billy well, Wilder embraced it. I think that's the difference. It. I think that's part of I – th- I think that I think that Jack Lemmon had a totally different experience on Wilder films for two reasons. Mm-hmm. Maybe three. One – he wrote the film specifically for him, really loving him as an actor, being right. like, this is my guy. You're right. Yeah, this is my chaplain. Two, 
he understood his character. So he was like, okay, I believe in you. I really want you to get this right. But three, and I think that's what you're just touching on, Jack Lemmon is a physical actor. So the things that he tweaked weren't really the lines. Mm -hmm. It was just what he was doing as he said the lines in that he was moving around and flailing and inventing little bits of physical comedy to go with the dialogue, but leaving the dialogue more or less alone so that he could add his own self to it in in a visible physical way. Well, I would say the physicality of the character makes the character more likable. Like, you know, because he seems a little bit more bumbling to a certain degree. Like, you know, the whole thing with the the cold, the nasal, you know, like the nasal spray and stuff like that. There's there's something about him that makes him feel um, a little safer, innocuous. And and maybe that's the reason why we're not getting that BDE. It's that him. little dick energy. That little dick well, energy. And also, I think apparently, like, if you were a moviegoer in the 1960s, you went to the movie theater, you didn't see anybody like a Jack Lemmon. Mm-hmm. You know, you saw the handsome guys. You saw the tough guys, the dangerous guys, the macho guys. You saw a whole range, but Jack Lemmon had the Jack Lemmon market to himself. Yeah. Is and by a- the way, I was thinking about that today. Is there a Jack Lemmon? I don't know if there is. There's not many films where you see a Jack Lemmon. I think the closest you could maybe say that to is somebody like Seth Rogen to a certain degree. You know, uh, but even them, it's it's not exactly fully right. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of movies being made with the essence of Lemon, which is, I'm a nice guy. A little lemon zest. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm nice. I'm charming. I'm funny. I'm a little floppy. I deserve to get the girl. I do feel like that's that type is still mm-hmm. there. I wish Joseph Gordon-Levitt could have continued in that Oh, vein. interesting, yeah. Because I think he has a real gift for comedy that I don't know why he put it away. Right. I mean, I feel like you could see a shared universe of the apartment and a Judd Apatow film being linked, right? Yeah. I think there are elements of, say, you know, the 40-year-old virgin in this. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's that, like— Oh, Krell has an idea, yeah. Yeah, that, like, hunger for companionship. Mm -hmm. Krell also stopped being And not being totally sure of, like, finding, like, the one good woman from a whole wall of women who are not going to work. Right, right, right. Getting Uh, bad advice, having bad role models. yeah, 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 yeah. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You know what I really love talking about bad advice in this movie? I just love the way in the world they put him in in this uh, in the uh, actual apartment building. His next door neighbors are my favorite characters. Oh my god, I love them so much. I was uh, upset to hear because they 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 are they are great, but I was upset to hear like that Doctor Dreyfus. What the studio really wanted Groucho Marx to play that role, and I I think I would have liked that. I, I you know to see Groucho Marx not doing Groucho. Uh, but kind of that character is such a funny character because he's like gonna report it. He's like, I'm gonna kick your ass. Like there's this thing, you know, and and there's something fun about that character. It would have been fun to see somebody memorable like that doing that, although maybe it's better that it was 
it was not memorable. Um, I mean, it is kind of interesting to see that Billy Wilder populated his universe with people that, you know, he felt represented his own experience. You know, mm-hmm. being like an immigrant who came to America as mm-hmm. an adult. That he let this film be full of not just, you know, the Dreyfus is not just the couple next door, but that the people's last names here. It's not like a movie of generic wasps. Yeah. Like he locates everybody really specifically. You know, that... Fran's last name is Kubelik, and that yeah. her brother is named Matushka. You know, that this is a universe of Americans and yeah. not just like quote unquote standard American no, TM. Like, I mean, by the way, I will say though, he has used the, the character name Sheldrake in the apartment, Sunset Boulevard, and Kiss Me Stupid. That was one name he came back to a lot. And I wonder why. I mean, it's a fine name. It's, it's a good name. I like Sheldrake. Sheldrake. Yeah. Have you ever met a Sheldrake? No, never. Are there even Sheldrakes? No, there should be. Come on, people, uh-huh. name your kids Sheldrake. Uh, their first name, not their last name. Um, <laughs> yeah, and yet, because Wilder's career stretches so much time and stretches so many genres, we get to look and see how the actors that he loved to work with changed underneath his feet. You know, Fred McMurray from Double Indemnity to the time of shooting The Apartment is a radically different person in the public eye. Because one of the big differences between Double Indemnity and The Apartment is the advent of TV. And of Fred McMurray starring in a show like this. Oh, my favorite show. My Three Sons. Starring Fred McMurray. I mean, I love, I, I, I don't know what it was, but, you know, I grew up with, and I may have talked about this before in Double Indemnity, but I grew up with Shaggy D.A., and the Fred McMurray Disney movies. Like, those are the things I remember. And then when I was like, he was on a TV show too? You know, and I was like, I, and whatever it was, I guess Nick at night or not even Nick at night, Nick during the late afternoon, uh, I was watching My Three Sons. I loved it. I just, I love Fred McMurray from that. So this whole other side of him is a real revelation to me. Like, I've gone backwards on him. Like, same way with... Uh, Sean Connery as James Bond. I was like, wait, there was another James Bond besides Roger Moore? And they're like, whoa, that one's way better. <laughs> well, yeah, and apparently after The Apartment came out, Fred McMurray went to Disneyland, probably as part of his Disney life, and a woman came up and hit him on the head with a pocketbook and said, how could you? Oh, wow. Although people on the set say that he was kind of an asshole. And that Fred he McMurray's like the whole thing was that, like, you know, you know, well, you can talk about this better than I can, like how actors do, like, Here's your footage. Here's my footage. When we're doing a two-person conversation, yeah, yeah, yeah. That when he wasn't on camera, he would either just not be there, or he would subtly sabotage you or cough when you did a really good line. Well, we reading. heard about that on on the waterfront with uh, with Brando. You know, it's interesting. It's like different actors prepare in different ways, and I wouldn't always say it's like a um, a dicky thing. But I've had an experience where it's sort of like practice before the cameras on you like you're doing it in the wide and you're you know that that's going to be used for a couple moments and then when it goes to you you know like okay pressure's on this is my coverage this is my close-up i have to nail it so you have to bring your a game because that is going to be the you know the best but the other actor on the other side at that point if you haven't gone yet you're kind of like wait it's almost like a relay race you're just waiting to go and you're you're working it out like maybe I'll do it this way you're you're almost like using it as a testing ground because it's not on you yet so i think some people do it intentionally um and some people don't i i'll tell you one story that i i love about off camera lines there's an actor remains nameless um who was doing a movie with Will Ferrell and Will Ferrell does all of his off camera lines because Will Ferrell is just the best and such a sweet nice good dude and 
when it came time for Will Ferrell to get, you know, to the camera to go on him, this guy wouldn't do the lines against Will Ferrell. And they said to him, they go, well, why don't you do the lines? He goes, when you pay me as much money as Will Ferrell, then I'll do the off-camera lines. And this is like a guy who is, you know, uh, not incredibly famous. He's still around. But I was like, but there is this weird attitude depending. Like, it's like a weird thing. Like, who wants to do off-camera lines? Like, I'm not working now. It's like, and it's such a weird thing. I don't think it, it, you know, some people, you know, are working out. Some people are just dicks about it. But it's a funny thing. Like, well, I'm not on camera. So why should I bother doing this? But it's, it's interesting. (laughs) <laughs> that uh, that that like he wouldn't want to do those lines or sabotage. I know maybe he was resentful that he wasn't Billy Wilder's first pick. I know. Well, yeah, his first pick died, right? Yeah, his first pick died two weeks before filming. So Billy Wilder was like, ah, call in a favor. And then also because Billy Wilder likes to tailor stuff, he had to rewrite all of their lines for Sheldrake's and to make sure they fit Fred McMurray. Uh, okay, got it. You'd think at least that'd be flattering. I guess, yeah. I mean, yeah, sure, yeah. I guess. But to this point about TV, you know, what I was really thinking about on this watch was how much – Wilder could have made the apartment as his criticism of where he thought Hollywood was going. Because it's easy for us to sit back and be like, the apartment, that's the golden era of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Everything was great. For Wilder, he was like, the golden era is dead. You know, I showed up just in time to witness a little bit of it in the 1930s when I was just a writer and I didn't have that much power in this town. And then from then on, I've watched this this whole industry become corporatized. I've watched the bankers take over. I've watched the studio system, which had its flaws, start to become – Fractured to where now as a filmmaker, half of what you do is you have to like get your own funding and be your own publicity and do everything yourself and be this tireless worker. I've seen how everything is focus group to death in ways that are killing the creativity of this industry. And now I've seen how television is coming in and is competing with us and how it is ruining everything. And so I love that scene where you have Jack Lemmon at home watching TV. Yes. He kind of comments on this whole thing. He comments on the whole thing. Let's listen. From the world's greatest library of film classics, we proudly present Greta Garbo, John Barrymore, Joan Crawford, Wallace Beery, and Lionel Barrymore in Grand Hotel. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you smoke the modern way, don't be fooled by phony filter claims. Starring Greta Garbo, John Barrymore, Joan Crawford, Wallace Berry, and Lionel Barrymore. But first, a word from our alternate sponsor. I mean, it's uh, it, it, the commentary on just like how TV is just all cowboys and yeah. violence. Everything and- is cowboys and violence. Everything is a Rick Dalton type of TV show. This kind of stuff Rick Dalton would have been making right around this time. Of course. Once upon a time in Hollywood. Well, you know, it's also interesting that uh, this is the first Best Picture Oscar winner to refer to a previous winner, uh, which is Grand Hotel, which won in 1932. Uh, I just love that he does do these like little comments, these like cheeky comments about, uh, you know, even his own work. I mean, you know, uh, Bud's boss at one point refers to, you know, having a lost weekend 
in uh, Bud's apartment, which was a Billy Wilder movie. Like, I feel like we don't see all the references because the references are no longer, uh, they're no longer relevant. You know, like you can get it, but it it, it would hit much harder in 1960 than it's going to hit in 2020. Right. But now, like, if he came home, you know, the guy flipping through channels, it would just be like one clip of Iron Man being like, the world's going to die unless we do this. Change again. Black Panther being like, the world's going to die unless we do this. I mean, it's the same repetitive joke. And I yeah. love it. It feels so fresh when he does it. I mean, I would and, also say that, that you could make a joke that, like, he turns on and couldn't literally can't find anything because he's awash in so many choices. Like, it would be like Greta Garbo in the Grand Hotel. And then you have Greta Garbo in Tonight in the Sahara. And Greta Garbo in, you know, it's like it's almost like you would almost have Did like you just ten make up tonight in the Sahara. Yeah. That's very good. Thanks. You should make it. But I appreciate that Wilder is using his time in this film to try to make his comment on everything. You know, if there is one thing that I think really pops about him is that he's a guy who has a ton of opinions and he wants to get them out there. Apparently they took this film, they took the apartment to East Berlin. Mm-hmm. And in East Berlin, they were hailing this film. They're like, This is great. We love that you have made this indictment of capitalism because they're all communists of course they're like thank you so much for making a film that really aligns aligns with our politics and says that you know the the western style of capitalism is killing all humanity and is destroying any sort of interpersonal relationships between people and then billy is like this movie could happen anywhere this movie could happen in hong kong in rome in paris and in london but the one place it couldn't happen is moscow and the people in the audience start going nuts they're like yeah and they start cheering he's like woo yeah 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 and he waits until they're done and he says yeah because Moscow, nobody owns their own apartment. And just crickets, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yeah, love exactly. It. And then he closed his speech by saying, you know, East Berlin, it's great you love this film. He will give you the rights of the, this film if you guys make a documentary about the Stalin Hitler non aggression pact that started World War II. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting too because uh, Soviet premier uh, Nikita Khrushchev was in the US to address the UN, and his interpreter ran into Shirley MacLaine. And they said, oh, you know, the uh, the premier sends his regards. He just saw your new picture of the apartment, and you have improved. <laughs> <laughs> because I guess he'd only seen her uh, other movie from 1960, The Can-Can, which he hated. So who knew uh, Nikita Khrushchev had, like, some uh, solid uh, movie critiques over there? Well, do you think he applauded by banging his shoe on the movie theater chair? <laughs> uh. <laughs> By the way, can I talk about like uh, one thing about this film that uh, that really stuck out to me was like what you said there, the rights to the film. Like I'll give you the rights if you do this. I'm blown away that no one has remade this film. And I was looking like, oh, well, uh, you know, in 1968, Neil Simon adapted the screenplay as a book for his Broadway musical, Promises, Promises. But it's interesting that no one's remade this. I actually like literally today, uh, I was like, why isn't he? I want to kind of find get to the bottom of it. And and some of these Billy Wilder films that are so classic are really ripe for for the remaking. We talked about Double Indemnity. We talked about Sunset Boulevard. I wonder if people feel so intimidated to take it over or or feels like we couldn't make this movie. I think you could make this movie today. Well, I um, wonder if part of the problem is it's hard to understand the setup. Because I think the first time I watched this movie, I was like, why don't these people get a hotel room? You know, like you're rich. Go get our hotel uh, room. What's right. the problem? And I looked into that because I could not understand yeah. why this apartment was so special in New York, which is a city of hotel rooms. Yeah. 
And apparently in 1960, the vice squad still had a really strict control over the hotels. And they were trying to make sure that hotels didn't encourage prostitution. Uh, so hotels were not allowed to have guests that weren't staying the night. It, they would have officers, undercover people patrolling hotels, making sure that nobody just uh, checked in for an hour. Interesting. And okay. now, I mean, does the Four Seasons care if you check in for an hour? No, because they get your money. They don't know when you leave. Exactly. You don't have to check out anymore. It's not like a, a big deal, you know. Exactly. But I guess back then, that's why these guys were in such fear. So I don't know how oh, you set okay. it up. Although I wonder, there's an element in here that reminded me so much of Airbnb. Mm. You know, this tiptoeing around, you're running the scam out right. of your apartment. But the lengths that Jack Lemon goes to to never tell his neighbors what's happening. I love that. To let them think that he's this horrible, mean, cruel Lothario who doesn't yeah. care about women. Because, I mean... I can only associate with Airbnb. Are they worried that they will kick him out if, he, if they know he's running this ring? Well, I think it, like I, I think it just simply as a neighbor, I just don't think you want to be like, yeah, I'm using my my apartment as like a fuck pad. Like, I mean, and not even mine. Like, I mean, why, like how would that even come up in casual conversation? Oh, by the way, if you do hear a, a lot of sex, it's not me. It's I'm giving my key out to other people. It's no big deal. Um, I think another thing to talk about with Billy Wilder is the way that he shoots these movies. They seem just to be uh, really effortlessly done. They they don't seem to have much fat on them at all. And I was... Yeah, he's doing... another guy who doesn't like to use close-ups. He just keeps yeah. it going. And I think that is good for comedy. I think that always comedy plays better and, and you know, in these one shots and, and you know, in, in these... But, you know, just you're seeing these characters interact. And it was because um, he kept his editor on set with him at all times. He, uh, Don Harrison, he made him a producer. And he only shot what he discussed with don'ts. They would go in and they would say, okay, let's look at this. And this is going into something that I've been reading about more often than not. I think it was, I think it might've been Lynn Ramsey. uh, She was talking on the DGA podcast about how she goes through the script with her editor during the scripting phase because she knows that she's going to get into the edit room anyway. So let's start to make the cuts before you even start to shoot it. And I love that idea of the editor being a very big part in it. We talked about this in Wild Bunch. You know, the editor has a different eye for things and can, you know, read a script differently than a filmmaker. And I love the fact that, you know, for somebody who is very hands-on, don't change my dialogue, don't change this, don't do that, that he had his editor there to make sure that, okay, we shot everything sparingly. We didn't overshoot. You know, we cut the film in camera. They, you know, eliminated costly setups but I thought that was really interesting to, to yeah, see Yeah, no, no. well, it also, I think, works really well with the idea of Wilder the Control Freak. When yeah. you don't give the studio other options, they can't screw with you. I mean, I did a movie one time like that, and it did not work out well. Really? Yeah, the, the studio was furious because we didn't have any other options besides what we had shot. And uh, and that was that, yeah. it was. Wait, uh, did it come out? It came out. You, this is, okay, I'm just going to describe that you have a very awkward smile. So no, I know it came out. I mean, well, it came out. The movie is called Army of One. It's uh, Nicolas Cage, myself, Russell Brand, uh, and uh, and it is it is very much uh, the movie that the director uh, Larry Charles wanted it to be. He shot no extra footage and was actually on days cutting scenes before even shooting them. So people were there and he's like, I'm cutting that scene. I'm not going to use it. And I think it was actually a really, you know, smart way to control the film that he wanted to make. Because I think a lot of directors know that if you give everything to the studio, they'll just take the movie away from you and they'll recut it. And that was a movie that at that time was done uh, with the Weinsteins. So that was, you know, who were kind of notorious for taking cuts away from directors. So, you know, it's, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, for better, or for worse. 
I mean, if you're going to screw over Weinstein, I'm going to be on your side. There you go. Amy, when this movie comes out, obviously Billy Wilder is is a sensation, you know, and he's playing on things. And we talked about earlier the idea that, you know, he's referencing things in culture. And um, there's a movie that came out called Suddenly Last Summer in 1959. And the tagline was, she knew she was being used for something evil. Whoa. And the apartment used a tagline. And I think Billy Wilder was like, you know, having fun with that. And it was the apartment, suddenly last winter, he knew his apartment was being used for something evil. Was he just screwing with that? I think he was. I think he was like, you know, <laughs> just having fun with that idea. Um, but how was this movie received when it came out? You know, honestly, it was polarizing. Uh, really? He, yeah. There was a lot of moralistic hand-wringing about this topic, about adultery and people having premarital sex. And he was really upset by it because he thought all of these critics who he really respected, people like Andrew Saris, they were rejecting his movie based on moralistic grounds while embracing it when it happens, he said, in like jury foreign films. The jury foreign films oh, are always wow. making movies about affairs and they're always talking about the corruption of the human soul and that all these critics love it when it's subtitled in French, but that when it's an American movie with a little bit of humor, they're suddenly like up in arms wow. and just absolutely upset by it and offended. So the reviews were mixed. They were not as uniformly positive as you might guess. Um, here's a couple quotes. Like Hollis Alpert of the Saturday Review called it, quote, a dirty fairy tale with a schnook for a hero and a sad little elevator operator for a fairy princess. <sighs> Another critic said that A.L. Diamond, his screenwriter, should change his name to Zircon. And then the one that I, I pulled, um, because I just found it notable all the way around, was a very, very terse review from The New Yorker. Uh, and here the critic is John McCartan. He reviewed four films in one week at, in The New Yorker because he dismissed all of them as, quote, not very stimulating. Uh, one of them he only gives a sentence to. He does not even care. Another one is a Peter Sellers comedy. And he's like, whatever. Another one that he dismisses as not very stimulating is Psycho, which he calls dawdling and uncertain and heavy-handed. Oh, wow. And then finally he gets to the apartment. And his sum total of what he says about the apartment is, quote, the hero of the thing is a youthful organization man and a difficult one to sympathize with as he goes about turning his home into a kind of brothel for his bosses. And Mr. Wilder and Mr. Diamond in putting together this script never seem to have decided whether his conduct is prankish or deplorable. Miss McLean and Mr. McMurray uh, use Mr. Lemons' place as a pad until the hero decides he's in love with Miss McLean. These are gray flannel beatniks, all right. If you want them, take them. And that's all. Wow. He didn't think there was anything else worth commenting on in this film. It's. I guess I love that idea that that moral code kind of comes into everything. You know, that really paints a picture. It, it, uh, I'm I'm fascinated by that. So, well, I guess Amy, you know, I I think we both really love this movie. Um, we talked about the idea of how many Wilder films should be on the list, and I know that you kind of just went through and cut all of them. Um, <laughs> I but, like them. I like them. Right. I like them. I like them. But are you but saying he's... that this is the one that you would pick to be on the list? I guess that's what I'm getting at. I think right now, yeah. I think absolutely this should be on the list. And I wrestle with it because I look at Double Indemnity as being a great example of noir. Now, I believe that you can replace it with another great example of noir. But I like the fact that it kind of, you know, in a weird way sets the tone. And, you know, and we have a lot of noir. So I could I could argue that one. Falling off, although I love it, and I I I, love I, it too. I do it with you know with I, like I'm just 
I'm I'm bracing for impact. But the one and movie my that, biggest loss would be also a Barbara Stanwyck movie because I don't know if right. we have another one. On well, the I think list we could put I one love, on. I think we'd have yeah, to find one. I but. adore her. I think she and Joan Blondell are these two actresses from the 30s that we need to celebrate. I mean, I would put my Lady Eve on here. I mean, but I would. Yeah. But uh, the other one I wrestle with as far as this kicking it off the list. I I already said that I think we can kick something like it hot off the list. Uh, I think I did. Um, is uh, Sunset Boulevard. It's yeah, so that's unique. The one. It's such a unique story. It's so well done. It has echoes of so many movies after it. I, I just feel like if you were to say that these are the two, the way we talked about Kubrick being Strange Love in 2001, I would take these two as my, you know, I, if I was, you know, gun to my head, uh, I would take Sunset Boulevard and, uh, and The Apartment as my two Wilders. Me too. Me too. I could live with that. I could live with that. Although that does mean I would probably never be able to get my baby Jane on the list. Well, look, we, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll figure it out. All right. So, Amy, is there a Simpsons? No. But the theme of adultery is something that the Simpsons come back to time and time again. And the episode that I thought recalled this one the best is mm-hmm. the episode called Life in the Fast Lane. This is the one where Marge um, is trying to celebrate her birthday and Homer gives her a bowling ball with his name engraved on it. Yeah. And he's like, oh, do you not want it? I guess I'll just have to keep it. And she's like, this marriage is not working. You know what? I'm going to learn how to bowl. Screw this guy. Takes the bowling ball, starts bowling, falls in love with a man who's also bowling. And at one point, he suggests she goes to his apartment. For I am about to say something very serious, perhaps shocking. Marge, my darling, I want you to meet with me again. That doesn't shock me. Away from prying eyes, away from the Helens of the world. At my apartment, the Fiesta Terrace. (gasps) I've been waiting for you. Come in, my captivating one. May I have this dance? Sure. You certainly have a lot of bowling trophies. <laughs> mm. oh, I like you so much. <laughs> They're not for bowling, Marge. You're so naive. They're for lovemaking. Really? Yes. What cosmic force brought us together, Marge? Destiny? Yes. Some divine pin spotter must have placed us side by side. Like two fragile bowling pins. Standing bravely. Until inevitably... We must topple. Marge, speak to me. Is Thursday okay? It's okay indeed. This episode, by the way, is the one with maybe the best Simpsons ending of all time, where Marge is driving to the department. She is done. She's driving the apartment at the last minute. She turns off and goes to the nuclear power plant. Walks in, Homer picks her up in the ar- in his arms, and as they start to play, I think it's what, Love Lift Us Up Where We Belong, some epic romantic yeah. ballad. He says, I'm taking my wife to the parking lot, and I won't be back for 10 minutes. <laughs> but yes, so Jack Lemon, he loses the Oscar again for The Apartment. He was nominated for Best Actor for Some Like It Hot. He was nominated the very next year for The Apartment. His career is solidified at this point. He doesn't win, and what he says about it is, quote, There are still idiots in this town who think there is some difference between drama and comedy in the sense that drama is real acting while comedy isn't. Oh, wow. I love that. I mean, that's an argument that we keep on fighting till this day. I think it is. Yeah. I mean, he even quotes um, one of his favorite friends, this character actor, Edmund Gwynn. 
His dying words to his own friend, George, who was the director of uh, Miracle on 34th Street, George says to him as he's dying, I guess dying can be really hard. And Gwyn's last thing he ever said in life was, yes, but not as hard as playing comedy. <laughs> Uh, All right, so that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Amy, still away on Sundance Assignment. She's not on an assignment for our show. Like I said, you can follow her on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. You can follow Unspooled on Twitter to find out what we're up to. You can also use that little texting thing that I mentioned uh, before. Uh, There, you can give me a little text, and I can text you back. We have fun texting times. Um, I'm at 917-877-0657. If you write Unspooled, uh, I will know that you want to talk about Unspooled stuff. Um, But let's talk about next week's episode. Next week's episode is going to be all about the Oscars. That's right. Who was nominated? Who wasn't nominated? What is good? What deserves to be spoken about? Uh, I know personally I'm upset that we uh, will not be able to speak about Uncut Gems, but maybe we will be able to speak about it as one of the big slights of this Oscar season. Um, So Amy and I are going to have a deep dive. It's going to answer a lot of the questions I think a lot of you had for our best of the decade. I think a lot of you said, hey, you left 2019 relatively untouched, and we're going to get a chance to kind of talk about some of our favorites. but Lighter, lighter than last year. We're just not going to go all in. We're just going to kind of breeze through them all. So I want you to think of your favorite movie of the last year. It doesn't have to be an award winner, but I'd like you to make up a category for that movie. So, you know, you could basically say uh, for best use of a Furby, Uncut Gems. Uh, You know, so have fun with it. Uh, It could be, you know, great films uh, like, you know, Little Women. It could be uh, a movie that is just something that you really enjoyed this past year that doesn't have to have any pomp and circumstance, right? But you're giving out awards, so we want to hear your award. Make up the award. Tell us the movie that's going to win the award. Call us at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824 with your movie, well, your award winner and your award that you've just created. Um, all right, we will see you next week on Unspooled. Dixon plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.